There are many different groupings in modern Jewish life. Reform, conservative, Orthodox, Hasidic, Svarnik, Chabad, Reconstruction, Yeshivish Modern Orthodox, Open Orthodox, Jews for Jesus. What do all these terms mean? In this episode, we're going to take a look at American Jewish denominationalism. Try to figure out where these different groupings of Judaism in North America, where do they come from? More importantly, where are they heading? As always, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Please like and share it, and feel free to leave us a question or a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. We're going to talk about Jewish denominationalism. A lot of words, a lot of letters in that word. Denominationalism. I think that'll get you 45 points in Scrabble right there. Um, I specifically for tonight's class want to focus, I should have caveated this in um, some of the material that we're sending out. I want to specifically talk tonight about denominational Jewish life, specifically in the United States. We're going to talk about what American, you know, if you look around the United States, you look at North American Jewry, you see a lot of little groups. I made a list of a whole bunch of groups. We got Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Hasidic. Spartic, Chabad, Reconstruction, Yeshivish, Modern Orthodox, Open Orthodox, Jews for Jesus. You have all these little groups, you know, maybe some are inside or outside. How do you, how do you view them? What are these little groups? What are these, what we would call denominations of, of Jewish life? What are they? Specifically, where did they come from? What are they doing? And I think most importantly, where are they going? What's the future for Jewish denominational life? particularly in the United States of America. It could be very confusing. What are all these groups about? What are their origin stories? And how do we understand them? How do we dissect um, what these things are all about? There is a ton of material to cover. I mean, you could spend, I mean, there. I just brought in some of the books that I've been studying, that I've read uh, to get a, a good sense. Most important one is, this is the Pew Study. 2020, uh, Jewish Americans in 2020. They did one in 2013. Um, you can get this online. I just printed this out myself. You can get this online. Just Google Pew Study Research Center Jewish Americans in 2020, where you get all the demographic work that you can possibly need. What, what does North American Jewelry look like? Uh, keep in mind, three quarters of this books are the appendices. So it's the first, you know, maybe third of the book is all that, that is really relevant. Um, and then you have many books on what, you know, the history of North American Jewry, understanding Jewish denominationalism in the United States, Orthodox Jews in America by Jeffrey Gurak. He's a, a professor, was a professor at YU, a professor's uh, profiles American Judaism. Uh, this is a, I don't think I read this one. Um, Responses to Modernity. It's the history of the reform movement in Judaism. Um, I read not all of it, but a good chunk of it. Um, and American Judaism by Sarah is probably the best book, or one of the best books. For further reading, there's an, an, an incredible amount of information. Um, it's, it's, I mean, you can get several PhDs, you know, trying to untangle or discuss this topic, but we'll get it, get you in and out of here in, you know, I don't know, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, we'll get it all condensed. I do recognize the irony of an Orthodox rabbi talking about conservative reform, reconstruction. I'm not Chabad. I'll talk about Chabad. I'm not Spartac. I'm not at least a practicing Hasidic Jew. You know, but, you know, ultimately, you know, I get it. I'm not a reform rabbi. I'm not a conservative rabbi. But 
you know, just as an observer and someone who studies some of the stuff, I'll, I want to share some of my thoughts as well as um, not too many. I'll share some opinions. This is a hot topic. It's controversial. There's certainly elements in Jewish life, almost by its very nature and definition, where it's, div- it's divisive to some degree. You have denominations. You have different groups. Orthodox, conservative, reform. Let's call it how it is. I disagree. I'll get it on record before we even start. I disagree personally, you know, being an Orthodox rabbi, an Orthodox Jew, you know, I disagree with uh, reform theology and ideology, conservative reform uh, um, theology and ideology. I'm not a Chabad guy. I disagree with parts of Chabad's theology and, and ideology. It's not a secret. The question is, is how do we understand it? And I'm just going to offer, you know, my perspectives, how I see it and how I understand it. Good. Makes sense. Everyone ready? Here we go. I want to start with the following, a little bit of Jewish history. North American Jewry, the North American Jewish community began when? We know the exact date, September 21st, 1654. It's incredibly close. Why I love American history. American history, unlike any other, almost any other history. Um, for example, if you want to study the history of Great Britain, where do you start? I don't know. It's like murky. I don't know. Magna Carta. What was all this? It's very hard to figure out origins. You know, American history, we have dates. We know when Columbus set sail, August 1st, 1492. We know dates. We know exactly how we got here. The North American Jewish community was, there were Jews, there were isolated Jews that had, you know, been in North America before 1654. Um, But the first Jewish community was established, first group of of Jews in North America landed in New York, New Amsterdam on September 21st. It was like days before Rosh Hashanah, if I recall, or it was right after Rosh Hashanah, right around Rosh Hashanah time. On September 21st, 1654, these were Jews who were refugees. They were running away from Recife, Brazil, which had a smaller Jewish community. Who were these Jews in Recife, Brazil? These were Jews who were on the run from the Spanish Inquisition, as I mentioned, from 1492. These 23 Jewish families that landed on the shore, shores of this country in 1654, I just listed all these denominations. Were these Jews Reform, conservative, orthodox? Who were they? Hasidic? Who were these Jews? What denominational class did they belong to? Reform? There was no class. They were all the same. Right. Okay. Mark's paying this. So those who came to our class, we gave a course about three years ago called How We Got Here, where we spent a little bit of time going through the history of North American Jewry. So we stressed and pointed out there was no such thing as reform. There's no such thing as conservative. You had varying levels of observance, but there was no real such thing as Jewish denominationalism. There was traditional mainstream Judaism. There was Judaism, that's it. There is the Talmud, there's the code of Jew- the, the, the various codes, the codes of Jewish law, Shulchan Aruch. That was it. There's no such thing as reform, there's no such thing as conservative, no such thing as reconstruction. These things were are, are 200 years away. Never happened. There was no such thing. Does that mean these were all observant Jews? No. Not in the slightest. There were varying levels and degrees of observance, but there was no such thing as different groups, different denominations. They were Jews, and that was it. Happens to be these were all Spartac Jews, mainly Spartac Jews. And the early, the first 150 years of, of Jewry in North America, they happened to be Spanish Portuguese or Spanish Portuguese, um, following the Spanish Portuguese right. These were 
from, as I mentioned, refugees from Recife, Brazil, who are refugees, really, they're two steps along the way. They weren't just from, from Brazil. These are from Brazil. Most of them were from the Netherlands who are from, from Spain or through Portugal, through Spain. That's who most of that's who these Jews were. And that would be the bulk of North American Jewry at least till 1820. For the next 200, 150 years more, that would be North American Jewry. As I mentioned, were these people observant? No. Now, here's the key. In North America, there never has been Well, let's take a let's take a step back. Well, let's go forward. In the United States of America, we have a notion of the separation between church and state. A separation between church and state. You do not need to belong to any faith. You do not need to belong to any church. You do not need to belong to any synagogue, right? And we're protected by the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. So in order to be a practicing anything, you don't need to affiliate with anything. This is not the case in other countries. You have to be a part of different uh, part of different synagogues, churches, denominations. It's not the case in, in the United States. It's a very much a capitalistic laissez-faire, everything, you know, whatever, whoever wins, wins, and that, that's all. Jews acculturated and assimilated very quickly. When did the first rabbi come to the United States of America? It's an interesting question. First rabbi, you got 1654 is when the first Jews arrived in North America. Wasn't there a rabbi with them? Nope. There wouldn't be a rabbi on the shores of the United States for almost 200 years. The first rabbi to set, you know, feet to really, there were rabbis, there were interim rabbis that would come to preach and leave. Um, but the first rabbi to actually get a job as a rabbi in the United States of America was Abraham Rice in 1840 in Baltimore. 1840, you're talking almost 200 years. Jewish life was stagnant, naturally. If there's no rabbi, you know, that's just an indicator that Jewish spiritual life was not terribly robust. These were not particularly um, devout, particularly motivated spiritual people. And that was the reality of North American Jewry by 1840. You know, it was not, it was, it was not a particularly robust Jewish life. Beginning in 1840, as these Jewish communities, people were nominally Jewish, people were affiliated with whatever, you know, with their synagogues, they, they, were felt, they were faced with a bit of a conflict, a dilemma. On the one hand, they wanted, they were not Christian, they weren't interested in joining necessarily the church next door, but on the other hand, they weren't particularly observant, nor were they looking for scrupulous religious observance to begin with. They weren't necessarily, many of the masses weren't necessarily particularly interested in observing the laws of Shabbat, the laws of Kashrut, the various laws and minutia of Jewish law and halacha. The laity, the masses were not particularly observant and spiritual people. The reason why I bring this up is that there is a, when we talk about the birth of the reform movement in the United States of America, it needs to be placed in sharp distinction. Most people, you've heard of the reform movement. Many people think of the reform Jewish movement in Germany. Reform movement began in Germany right around the same time. The reform movement in Germany was absolutely different. It was a distant, I always say it's a distant second cousin to the reform movement in North American Jewry. 
Reformed Jewry in Germany was a top-down movement where you had theologians, you had deep Jewish thinkers who wanted to reform Judaism top-down. North America, by in the 1840s, it was very much a bottom-up movement where you had Jews who weren't particularly observant, weren't particularly motivated, weren't particularly interested in following strict Jewish ritual. Enter the Civil War, 1860s, North American Jewry is rocked. You know, wars, by definition, displace a lot of people. After, world, after the Civil War, I mean, again, over some gross oversimplification, but it was really beginning after the Civil War. You can really it starts in the 1840s, but really in mass after after the Civil War is when you have many of these rabbis, these reform rabbis are uh, from Germany are hired. They're kind of brought into the United States to lead these congregations who aren't particularly looking for, you know, strong Jewish leadership, but you know they need a rabbi, and enter the slow birth of the reform Jewish movement. It was very much a bottom-up movement. It was a movement of, you know, the laity, the masses, who weren't looking for, for strong, you know, sc scrupulous observance. As, the, you know, the decades wore on, so there, there, there wasn't this cohesive movement, this cohesive group called Reform Judaism. You had these isolated, these different rabbis throughout the country who were reforming Judaism. They were instituting various changes. Things like bringing in an organ into this into the Shabbos service, you know, things like um, getting rid of having mixed mixed pews. Women traditionally sat in the balconies; so they brought them downstairs and then mixed the mixed the pews. Um, changing the liturgy, getting rid of a lot of the Hebrew, a lot of the traditional parts of what a synagogue looked like, in order to make the tefillah to make Judaism a lot more relevant to the masses, to the Americanizing Jews. So they started making. Many, many reforms. And you have, you know, at, at, by the 1870s, 1880s, you have more powerful and influential leaders amongst the rabbinate who are really looking to break away seriously from the classic traditions of Orthodox Judaism. And they start making major reforms to the, to the, to the religion, major things at the core of the religion. Now, it was a very broad spectrum. You had radical reformers who basically wanted to get rid of all the theology of Judaism. Many of the most fundamental tenets of Judaism, things like belief in an afterlife, belief in a, mess, in a messiah, belief in um, the rebuilding of the temple in the Jerusalem, the, you know, the, the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem, and the avodah, the service in Jerusalem. All The radical reform wanted to do away with all that stuff and turn Judaism into a very low common denominator, focus on things like social justice, very broad things, but do away with a lot of the halacha, a lot of the rigors of Jewish life. Those were the radical elements within Reform Jewry. Um, there were people who were a lot more moderate, who wanted to stick to, to, to traditional Judaism, but were comfortable making slight reforms to try to modernize, make sure that Judaism, the traditional halachic, Judaism, as been practiced for the last million years, would be a little bit more adaptable to North American life. So you had this spectrum within Reform Jewry, and then you still had off to the side smaller elements of traditional Jewry. But by and large, the Re Reformation, as it were, this movement of reform was sweeping. In the 1880s, two major things happened. 
which really changed the trajectory or, or created a major chasm within Reformed Jewry. Number one was a, one of the, it wasn't the first major gathering, it was probably the second or third major gathering of Reformed rabbis who kind of came together and tried, how can we unite? Can we come together and really start a new denomination, an official creed? What does Reformed Jewry believe in? And to kind of unify themselves and create a, like a unified theological or ideological belief. And they came together in the year 1885 in Pittsburgh, and they developed what was called the Notorious Pittsburgh Platform. Anyone, you may have heard of the Pittsburgh Platform of 1885. This was kind of like the Ten Commandments. This was like the new definition. What does Reformed Jewry believe in? I'll read some of their, their beliefs. We weigh out, you know, Item number one, we recognize in every religion an attempt to grasp the infinite. We hold that Judaism presents the highest conception of the God idea. So first of all, they're acknowledging other religions have really great values. They don't talk about God. They talk about a God idea. What does that mean? And we're just better than everyone else. We hold that the modern discoveries of scientific research in the domain of nature and history are not antagonistic to the doctrines of Judaism. The Bible reflecting the primitive ideas of its own age at a, and at a time clo- uh, clothing its conception of divine providence and justice dealing with men in miraculous narratives. Um, basically, they reject the, the biblical narrative, anything in the Torah that seems to go against science. Well, the Bible is great and has a lot of wonderful lessons, but we'll reject that. Number three, we, today we accept as binding, uh, okay, let me back up. We recognize in the Mosaic leg- legislation, Jewish law, halacha, a system of training the Jewish people for its mission during its national life in Palestine. Jewish halacha, Jewish law and ritual, that was great back in biblical times, back in the ancient lands of Palestine. However, today we accept as binding only its moral laws. The only things that are binding are the moral laws. But all of halacha, all of Jewish law, ritual, observance, that's all out the window. These are radical, radical changes. These aren't just small adaptations. You'll read some of the things. It's rejections of Israel being of any significance in Jewish life. Major, major rejections of normative traditional Judaism. That was fine. All the radical reformers were thrilled with that. However, you know, the more traditionalist or moderate reformers were not interested in that. And things came to a head, famously, um, the Reformed Judaism had established the first, its first rabbinic college in Cincinnati called HUC, Hebrew Union College. And at its first graduating dinner, at its first graduation, famously, and this goes down uh, in, in Jewish lore and Jewish mythology, they're graduating these the first crop of American, ra- American trained rabbis. At the graduation ceremony in 1880, what did I say, 1885 or 1883 uh, in Cincinnati, what happens? They have this big uh, convention, this big banquet, and what do they serve? You know, shrimp, you know, shellfish, not kosher food. The first, and this is famously known in Jewish lore and Jewish mythology as the trefa banquet, scandal. They serve non-kosher food 
at the first graduating class of rabbis in Northern. Now that Matt, now the 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 radical reformers are. What's the problem? We've rejected Jewish law. The moderate reformers were hor- horrified. The old saying goes: It was at the at, it was at the Trefa banquet in Cincinnati and whatever it was, 1883, 1883, because of the scandal and the shock uh, that the moderate reformers felt. That was the birth of the conservative movement. Now, this is a, now it's a, obviously a gross oversimplification, but there's a lot of truth to it. It does represent a microcosm, a point of divergence between the, the within the reform world. Reform Judaism had been around for the last four decades, let's say, but in the 1880s, it really splintered. And this is a very, very important point. We want to understand what Jewish love like, Jewish life looks like today and where it came from, it's important to always understand the origin story. Reform Judaism was exactly what it sounds. It was a way of watering down Judaism, traditional practicing halachic Judaism. It was a way of getting rid of things that people just weren't interested in and abandoning halacha. It it became very radicalized overly radicalized. And we'll see, by the way, just to fast forward in a second, it's got to kind of bounce back a little bit. By the 1930s, 1940s, it tones itself down. They got rid of everything in the early days of reform. They got rid of, you know, any notion they weren't wearing. The rabbis weren't wearing yarmulkes. They hated the state of Israel. They were radical in terms of their approach. If if you speak to modern reform rabbis, reform rabbis of today, they look back at the early stages of reformed Jewry, uh, kind of with, with shame. They were, they were not proud of these guys. These were anti-Israel, you know, very against any kind of Jewish ritual. Um, and, and reformed Judaism has really um, evolved significantly past. They end up rejecting the Pittsburgh Pact. Conservative Jewry, this is an important point, conservative Jewry was not a response to, to traditional Orthodox halachic Jewry. People tend to view it like that. Well, you had, you know, there's Orthodox Judaism and conservative kind of peeled away, maybe halfway from that, and reform peeled away even farther than that. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. Reform splintered away from traditional Judaism, but it splintered too far away. And there was a counter-revolution who liked some of the ideas that what reform was doing, this is again the late 1800s, of modernizing, contemporizing a lot of the ideas of Judaism, they did view, they realized, or they felt that old shtetl Jewry as practiced in Europe, in the, in the ghettos of, Jewry, of, of Europe, that wouldn't work in the United States. It needs to be updated and modernized and turned you know, into contem- meaningful in a contemporary sense. But reform Jewry went too far. So instead, what happened, they created as a way, as, 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 and specifically by, because of the Pittsburgh platform, and particularly because of the Trefa banquet in 1883, they created the, 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 the conservative movement. The conservative movement has to be understood as a breakaway from reform. The original conservative movement for the first 50 years within more first 60 years of its existence viewed themselves as traditional mainstream Judaism. Okay. They did not view themselves as a new denomination. 
That is a critical piece. Okay. Conservative Jewry from 1883, let's say, <laughs> to 19, you know, 50, let's call it, probably not for some, not till 1970, didn't really view themselves as anything other than traditional Judaism. They would argue we follow halacha, we follow Jewish law, we follow Jewish ritual. We just modernize certain things, make things a little bit more contemporary. We're just trying to make, you know, recognize that ghettoized Judaism as practice in the shtetl in Europe, that's not going to work here in North America. We need, you know, people that can embrace baseball, that can, you know, speak good English and kind of modernize it. But really to hold tight to tradition, to, or to observance. And that's what happened. Beginning in the early, in the late 1800s, um, the, you know, they started, it was to, in order to, to create conservative Jewry, the first thing that really happened, and it still is till today, sort of the, one of the three main pillars of conservative Jewry, they founded a seminary. They founded a seminary to train rabbis or to train deep thinkers of Judaism. And that was called JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. JTS on the, you know, the east side of Manhattan, on like in like Harlem, like 123rd Street, something like that. They founded a seminary. Originally, it was sloppy. It was a failure. It ended up being reorganized by the early 1900s. They brought in tremendous scholars, brilliant academics to run this seminary. And you'll note I used the word scholars and academics. I didn't use the word Talmudists or Halachists. They brought in some of the most scholarly academic thinkers, mainly from Europe. And they brought these people in into the seminary. These were brilliant professors who kind of studied Judaism or their approach to Judaism was very, very academic. The most famous, who was the first president, the first chancellor of JTS, someone you may have heard of, is someone named Solomon Schechter. You ever heard of Solomon Schechter? All the day schools are named after him. Solomon Schechter was a brilliant, brilliant man and was a tremendous academic, a tremendous professor. I stress this to point out, these people were heavyweights. I want to contrast who these people were for the first 50 years with what was going on in the reform seminaries. The reform seminaries always had a low caliber of professors and scholarship. Later on, they would get, you know, better, you know, professors. But JTS had the powerhouses. They had brilliant. They had people like Heschel. They had people like uh, Louis Ginsburg. They had people like Boaz Cohn. They had uh, br brilliant Finkelstein. They had these brilliant, powerful people who were scholars and academics. And if you went to JTS as a student, you know, you got a very well-rounded education. You, in order to graduate JTS, you had to have a college degree. You had to speak English really well. You had to have a very wide, you know, base of knowledge. And JTS was pumping out these people. JTS, however, would tell you, we're not a yeshiva. We're not a rabbinic school. We're not really training people to become rabbis. In, in the classic sense. And they wouldn't, initially, they didn't even, even really give out smichel. It's called rabbinic ordination. 
they would tell, you know, this guy is qualified, this guy's a scholar, and this guy's smart, and this guy's educated. But by and large, most of the rabbis who were graduating out of JTS, you know, were at the, 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 the professors in the school were at a very high caliber. But the rabbis and the graduates, the student body was at a fairly weak caliber overall. That was the first, let's say, 50 years of the conservative movement. It was a movement they viewed themselves very much within mainstream traditional Jewish life. Does that make sense? That's a very important. Um, am I, first of all, let me stop. Any thoughts, questions before we go on? Am I, am I making sense? Okay. The first rabbi that came in here from 1860? 1840. 1840, excuse me. Was he, did he have any Orthodox reform or whatever? So he was an Orthodox rabbi, Abraham Rice okay. in Baltimore. Thank you. Abraham Rice in Baltimore. Okay. Reform, conservative Jewry for those first 50 years didn't break away from traditional, orth, you know, traditional Jewish life. They viewed themselves working within the halacha. They were working within traditional Jewish values. The problem was that was at the leadership. And this is an important thing to understand conservative Jewry, where it was. Let's say, let's stop the clock at the year 1950, ballpark. You have to understand conservative Jewry on three different levels. And this, this really holds true till today. There are three levels to understanding conservative Jewish life. There is the leadership at the way top, you know, the people who run JTS, you know, the people at the way top of the, of the seminary, the leaders of the movement. For the first 70 years, not until 1970, they viewed themselves very much as a part of normative Jewish halachic life. They viewed, they didn't even view conservative Jewry as a denomination. It was just a modern version of traditional. Judaism has practiced for the last gazillion years. That's how they viewed themselves. And they wanted it, for whatever reasons, they clinged to, to that, that belief. The problem was two layers, the, the, the next two layers. You had the rabbis in the congregations that were out in the field throughout the cities. These rabbis were interested, almost you know, all of them, were interested in massively changing Jewish practice. They wanted to do away with the halach. They wanted to do away with normal practice. And they were, you know, kind of at loggerheads with the leadership. Why did the rabbis in the field want to go ahead and change the halacha? Why did they want to go ahead and change normative Jewish law? Their answer is the third tier, the bottom tier, which were the masses. The masses at the bottom could care less. The congregants, the people actually filling the pews, had very little pious or theological motives. They weren't interested in the theological underpinnings of conservative Jewry, and for that matter, reform Jewry. They weren't really interested. They wanted to go to Shul to assuage their Jewish guilt and, you know, show up, feel nominally connected to Judaism, and that was it. You know, and didn't really care much for the halacha, and they couldn't really be compelled. Again, this is the United States; you're free. You can. You're only bound to follow your religious, you know, doctrine and rules to whatever degree you care about it. No one can compel you. 
So the rabbis in the middle tier were feeling tremendous pressure from the laity. Yet the top wants to keep them in balance. And till the year 1950, you couldn't really tell the difference between a conservative rabbi or an orthodox rabbi. And I want to go forward for a second and then go back. Or back and then we'll go forward. Let, let's stop conservative, our discussion of conservative jury and reform jury. We'll stop in the year 1950 for a second. And let's talk about the third denomination of jury. And that is orthodox. When did orthodox jury start? So the answer is it's a trick question. And this is an important, this is a very, very important point. If you want to understand modern, even if you want to understand contemporary modern Jewish life in the year 2022, you must grasp this point. There is no such thing as Orthodox Jewry. It doesn't exist. There is no such denomination called Orthodoxy. It's not a thing. Think about it. God gave Moses his Torah at Sinai 3,333 years ago. People, as a general rule, follow Jewish law. I don't want to oversimplify things. Obviously, there's a great spectrum. People believed in the divinity of the Torah, Torah Shabbat, the written Torah, and the Torah Shabbat, the oral tradition of the Torah. Fast forward to the year 430, the common era. You know, the Talmud is redacted. Jews, by and large, accept the Talmud as binding, as the authority of the Jewish tradition, the oral tradition of the Torah. Who are the, were those Jews? Was the people who, who living during the Talmudic time, were they Reform, conservative, or orthodox? The answer is they wouldn't know what you're talking about. There's one thing called Judaism. Now, throughout the ages, there would be many splinter groups that would reject part, portions, some, all, most of the, Jewish, of the oral tradition of the Torah. Those different groups would come and go. But by and large, throughout history, the only continuous group would be those who observe the Torah. As I mentioned in 1654, that in September 21st, that first group of Jews that landed in, in New York, what denomination were they? As I mentioned, it's a trick question. There was no denomination. They were observant Jews, traditional Jews. There's one thing. There's the Torah, the written Torah, the oral Torah. How observant were they? I don't know. People's observance levels always varied wildly throughout the ages. But there was no such thing as new creeds, new denominations, new belief systems as a theological movement within Judaism. It didn't it really didn't exist. Reform comes around in the 1820s, 40s, 50s, and strongly in the 60s, 1870, 1880. Conservative Jewry spins away from that 1890s, early 1900s. Orthodox simply is the default. If you weren't Reform, if you weren't conservative, you're orthodox. It's not a movement. It's not a denomination. That is critical to understand. The reason why it's critical to understand, let's fast forward to today. Or let's pick it up in 1950. Let's pick it up in 1950. Reform jury. Reform jury kind of just got, you know, it it. It's kind of shifts with the, with the way the winds blow. It really has no halacha. It has no 
core of Jewish belief. We mentioned the Pittsburgh platform. That was the Ten Commandments, as, as it were, you know, the creed of Reformed Jewry. They did away with it in 1930-something or other, and it's constantly being updated. Reformed Jewry, and this is a problem we stop today. The biggest problem of, of, that Reformed Jewry faces right now today is what do you not believe in? Ask a reform rabbi today, let's fast forward to 1950, 1960, 1970, 1980, ask them today, what do you not believe in? What is it, reform jewelry? So it's usually going to be some very broad things. Like it's, we don't believe in Christianity. It's usually a negative answer. It's, we're not Christianity. Fine. We don't believe in Jesus Christ. Take that out of the equation. You believe in monotheism. Even that, different you know, do you, are, they, are they strictly theistic? Not every reform rabbi is. Do you believe in God? Not every reform rabbi believes in God. They might believe even the Pittsburgh platform doesn't say God. It says God idea. They're very vague. There's, it's, it's very unclear. One of the big challenges that reform faces today, which is something that they faced back in HUC for the last hundred years, something that they've been struggling with the leadership is what, and again, I don't, I'm not saying this, I'm just saying this more as a historical fact. It's not a criticism. This isn't an opinion necessarily. One of the big challenges that reform rabbis have today is struggling trying to figure out how do I differentiate myself between being a rabbi or just being a social worker? In other words, I, I, I say that respectfully, reform the reform, some reform, many reform, not most reform congregations, reform uh, shoals, reform, you know, rabbis have drifted so far away from traditional Jewish value. They've abandoned halacha. They've abandoned Jewish belief. They've abandoned, you know, let's say the Rambam's 13 principles of Jewish faith. So what are you in the positive? It's a very hard and uncomfortable question for reform rabbis to answer. Meaning what's out of bounds for being, for, for being, you know, what, what is inconsistent with living a reformed Jewish life? It's very hard to answer that question without giving some broad answer, like being a good person. Well, that's inconsistent with being a good person. That's not inconsistent with being Jewish. What specifically, say it in the positive, what is a requirement of reformed Jewry above and beyond the requirements of being a decent person. That is something that Reformed Jewry struggles with mightily. It's their biggest weakness today. Let's project. What are my thoughts? Where do I think Reformed Jewry heading in the future? So here are my thoughts. Hot topics, my controversial take. I think their greatest weakness, as is generally the case for most people, usually our greatest weakness is our greatest strengths. Because Reformed Jewry has such a low threshold to entry. You don't have to do anything. If you want to convert to, to reform jewelry today, what do you do? Tell you what you don't need to do. They don't require circumcision, which has always been a big barrier to entry, you know, in, in, in Jewish life. They'll probably ask you to go read a book or two or three. You know, again, I don't mean to downplay it or I don't say it disrespectfully. It's not a very hard thing to do. I don't know. You read a couple books. You say, I really, really want to be Jewish and you're Jewish. What's the difference between being a good person and being a good reformed Jew? The answer is not all that much. A couple of notions of belief, but because it's got such a low, con a low denominator, a low floor or low ceiling, 
As I said, it's its biggest weakness, but it's also its greatest strength. I don't think reform Jewry is going away anytime soon. Why? Because they're constantly able. The problem that reform Jewry has is they lose a lot of people who feel like it's shallow. I'm not gaining anything out of this. There isn't all that much depth. And there isn't, frankly. And again, I say that respectfully. But it's, it's not so much, you know, there isn't the rigors of Talmudic study. You don't have, you know, the depth of, of the Talmud as being such a significant part to be a layman within the reform community. Because of that, it makes it so easy to replenish those that fall out because they, people join reform, you know, congregations very easily. They don't expect much out of them. It's very easy to join a reform congregation and to feel like I'm a good reformed Jew. I don't think reformed Jewry is going any, any going away any anytime soon. I believe it's a catch-all. Reformed Jewry is an easy catch-all for any Jew who wants to be nominally connected to anything. You walk into a reformed congregation and it's great and you're fine. Reformed Jewry isn't going away. Not only that, it's catching a lot of non-Jewish people who want to kind of, who are dissatisfied with the church, who are dissatisfied with other beliefs. And monotheism is, is interesting. So, so it's very easy to connect to, to Reformed Jewry. Phyllis has a question. But the next time we see Rabbi Heck, we should get his opinion on reform. Yeah, I was hoping he was going to come today. I was going to curious to hear his thoughts. I, I, again, I don't think what I just said, and I hope, and I, I don't think anything I just said was controversial. I would be comfortable offering, and I'm, I'm sure there, you know, maybe a reform. I don't think anything I said is, is, is terribly controversial. It's, it's how I sort of see it. I'm very curious well, if, if, our, curious if, yeah, if a reform rabbi would disagree with what I just said. I don't think they would. I mean, maybe they would, you know, some of the... To some degree, but I don't. I don't think a reform rabbi would disagree with. Uh, I don't think I said anything uncontroversial. If I did, I'm curious what it was. Which leads us to conservative Jewry. In 1950, conservative Jewry was trying to hold on dearly to still being part of traditional Jewish life. They were tweaking the halacha, making subtle changes here and subtle changes there. At the top, the rabbis really wanted, and the middle level, as we mentioned, wanted to blow things up. And in 19, right around 1950, they were successful in making massive changes. It should be noted, just to back up a second, the graduates of JTS for the first 50 years, and even for the next few decades, even into the 1970s, even into the 1980s, you will find many of the rabbis of conservative congregations, who were they? They themselves were Orthodox Jews. Many of the graduates of JTS had actually gone to, let's say, Yeshiva University. And then went on to JTS, and then ended up, these were Orthodox Jews who ended up, ended up being rabbis in conservative congregations. Nowadays, that's unfathomable. By the way, one of my good friends growing up, Orthodox Jew, he's still an Orthodox Jew, he's my, my graduated the same year as me, his dad was a conservative rabbi in, in, in Maryland, where I grew up. That was, I mean, that doesn't exist anymore today. Why? The answer is because in the early age, the first 50 years of conservative Jewry, conservative Jewry worked within Orthodox Jewry. It worked within the halacha. All the changes that they made, they viewed, we're not external to the Jewish law. We're not external to the, to the tradition. We're interpreting, just like you know, a rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi would interpret the halacha one way or another, we're offering our own interpretations. That's all fine and well. And I mean, they really pushed the envelope. But 1950 was a point of no return. What was the point of no return? When they went ahead and they issued the famous ruling that you're allowed to drive to Shalom Shabbos. That was a point of no return. 
that orthodoxy now said, we don't care, again, no one speaks on behalf of Orthodox Jewry, but that was really a point where it was very clear that conservative Jewry was now a, a, a denomination of its own. It's no longer just, you know, the left side of, of, of Orthodox Jewish life. It was, it crossed the threshold. It was out of bounds, was the driving to Shalom Shabbos. The next few decades, some of the more substantive changes, um, things like, you know, allowing, you know, women rabbis in the 80s or, you know, getting away of the mechitza, things like these things, which were, I mean, the mechitza was really down uh, much earlier, but let's say mixed pews, things like that, which became hot button issues in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. You know, by now, these aren't battles anymore. Conservative Jewry is very clear. I don't think anyone anyone in North America looks at conservative Jewry and says, yeah, they're really working internally within, inside of, of normative Jewish halach. Now, what's interesting is that conservative Jewry themselves would argue and maintain, we still are the bearers of the original tradition, but I, I mean, it's at a certain point, it just becomes semantics. It's, that's not what they are. They're a third and independent denomination. Where do I see conservative Jewry heading? So here are my bold hot take. Here's my prediction. Cons that last point that I just made is a critical point. Conservative Jewry as a movement viewed and views itself as still working within the Torah. The Torah has been a Shemayim. Hopefully, most conservative rabbis, at least at the way top, want to believe that. Conservative, you know, the Torah is from heaven. It's divine. And we could just constantly be tweaking and tweaking the, you know, the rabbinic law. The rabbinic law is open to interpretation. What the conservative Jews do, or not so much conservative Jews, what does the conservative Jewish leadership do when they get to uncomfortable verses in the Torah itself? Specifically, I think it's, it's going to be a very, it's, it's, it's going to be, a, we're going to look back 70 years from now. We're going to look back to about, 20 years ago, and we're going to say this was a threshold moment in the history of conservative Jewry. And that is, what do you do specifically, like a verse that says that's um, against homosexuality? I'm not going to get into, you know, that we're going to deal with maybe in a later class. I think we got our perspective on gender. How, you know, what's the Torah's perspective on that? Good question. Put a circle around the, the gut, the substance of it. The bottom line is that's what the Torah says. You want to say that driving on, Sh uh, you know, on Shabbos is not a violation of Jewish law because you come up with various rationale, great. You want to say that, no, really, you can't find in the Torah anywhere where it says, you know, mechitzas. All right. You want to justify a lot of the, you know, changes that conservative Jewry made, you know, fine. I will debate that. And Orthodox, not me, but Orthodox Jewry has debated that. You can't debate black and white texts in the Torah. Do you believe in the divinity of the Torah or do you not? It's a little bit of button. It, it, it's an issue that conservative Jewry is, to a certain extent, extent it's a crisis within, within the leadership. And there's something that they talk about within the leadership of conservative Jewry. It's splitting apart conservative Jewry right now. Do we believe in the divinity of the Torah? Do we not? If we don't, what differentiates you between Reform Judaism? You're no longer adhering to the basic fundamental tenets of Judaism. So what makes conservative Jewry conservative Jewry as opposed to reform Jewry? 
Things like that, issues like that are really going to be hot, are going to be points of tremendous tension today, right now at JTS. And they're pulling farther and farther and farther to the left. That's just a reality. What's my prediction of conservative jewelry? Conservative jewelry is getting torn apart right now. It's getting pulled apart massively. The demographics are being pulled apart. It doesn't really, it's, it's, it's crumbled. It's not crumbling. It's getting scratched. It's either getting pulled too, way too far to the left to the point where you can't really differentiate conservative. Conser- uh, go into a conservative show today. It's very hard to see the difference what a conser- many conservative shows today look like as compared to what a reform show looked like in the 1970s. You could tell the difference between a conservative show today and a reform show today, but not by much. What's going to be with conservative jewelry? I think conservative jewelry is going to be in real trouble in terms of maintaining its vibrancy for the next 30 years. I mean, the, the numbers just bear it out. The numbers are falling because what is conservative jewelry? They're kind of stuck in no man's land. It's going to be very, very hard. And that leaves orthodox jewelry. Within orthodox jewelry, you know, orthodox jewelry today makes up about 10% of the, of the, of the Jewish, con- of Jewish population. The number is growing. Within Orthodox Jewelry, you have many, many subgroups. Orthodox Jewelry, as I said, is broad. And I want to make the following points very, very important to understand. Two points. What makes a Jew a conservative Jew versus a reformed Jew? Why do some Jews attend their conservative shul? Or for, hey, let's talk Las Vegas. Why do some Jews go to Temple Sinai as opposed to TBS? I'll tell you what mo- the answer for the most part is not. For the most part, it's not deep theological reasons that I believe in the MS, the truth of reform Judaism over conservative Judaism, or I believe in the truth and the piety and the religious theology of conservative Judaism over reform. That's for, the, I would argue, I'm curious if I'm, I don't think I'm wrong. And again, I, I don't think this is controversial. I, I would ask, you know, a conservative reform rabbi, I think they would agree with me. I don't think it's because of theological reasons. It's for the following three reasons. That's the shul I go to. I don't know. That's what I go to. I like this rabbi. I don't like that rabbi. I like that rabbi. I don't like this rabbi. The service is too long. The service is too short. They got a good challenge. They got a good kiddish. The reason for the success of most you know, congregations in 2022 is not due to the movement. It's due to proximity. You know, it's due to weird coincidences. I don't know. Why do I go to that show? It's closer. But it's very little has to do with, you know, the, you know, religious life. Orthodoxy, on the other hand, has a lot more nuance and there's a lot more points of emphasis within Orthodox Jewry. This is a very important point. If you ever see anyone get up and, and claim to be speaking on behalf of any Orthodox, you know, on behalf of Orthodox Jewry, you know for a fact that they're a fraud. It's not true. No one speaks on behalf of Orthodox Jewry. It just doesn't exist. As I mentioned, there is no such thing as Orthodox Jewry. It doesn't exist. Rather, what do you have? People affiliate with different groups. There are different subgroups within orthodoxy. You have what's called more the, the more yeshivish, more of the right-wing groups. You have Hasidic sects, which are the, by far and away the fastest growing demographic 
within not just Orthodox Jewry, but all of Jewry. You go to Williamsburg, you go to Borough Park, and the Jews with the long caftans and the beards and the things, right? Those, their, their, their birth rates are, are, are huge. What's my prediction? Fast forward 40 years, the Hasidic Jewish population will be a very, very powerful force within Jewry. What about Chabad? Where does Chabad fit in? What's that? They came from Russia. What's absolutely remarkable is if you look at this book, this, as I mentioned, the 2020 Pew Research Center. It's absolutely fascinating. If you compare it to the 2013, again, they're talking about demographics. Where do Jews live? What do they believe? What are their attitudes? They ask them, you know, very basic demographic you know, questions. In the 2020 um, study, there's a whole section about Chabad. That in and of itself, I found to be fascinating. It says a lot about where Chabad is. Chabad is a fact of life, is a powerful force within North American Jewry in the year 2022. They just are. Chabad has a couple things going for them. What, you know, number one, they are hierarchical. They have a very powerful, a very clear structure. You know, there's 770, if you've ever know what, seven, know what that means, that's their headquarters. And they have in each city, they're sort of like a head. It's a very, you know, pyramids, you know, or, organizational flowchart. They work very much within themselves very, very well. And they have a huge network. That makes them to be a very powerful force within North American Jewry, within world Jewry for that matter. It happens to be, like as I kept on saying, usually your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. One of the big challenges that Chabad has is working together with other groups. This has always been a challenge that Chabad has. Chabad is Chabad. They're not so interested in working, you know, with the guy next door or the group next door with the non-Chabad. That's a challenge that Chabad has always had and will continue to have. What do I think Chabad's going to be? I think Chabad is a pretty powerful thing. I don't think they're, I think they're going to get stronger and stronger over the next few years, if not two or three decades. I'm very curious where they're going to be in seven years from now. Because although they are hierarchical, they're very connected to their messianism as being a major point. The, the unspoken secret within Chabad, for those who are familiar or not familiar, this is a whole class in its own right, is many of them, some, many, or most, it's unclear, this is out of my league of expertise, you know, had very strong messianic beliefs about the Rebbe who died, you know, 20 some odd years ago. Some, many, or most, and it's a very powerful force. How about this? All of them put tremendous emphasis on the role of the, of the last Rebbe, the last leader of the Chabad movement. And that's great, and that's unifying, and it's powerful. I'm very curious, how long will that last? You know, the, the current leadership of Chabad, they all had connections to the rebel. If, if not close, warm connections, maybe they were a step or two away. Fast forward, you know, another generation, two more generations, they never met the rebel. There is no more rebel. Where will Chabad be in seven years from now? I don't know. I find that to be a fascinating question. Within orthodoxy, as I mentioned, you've got Hasidic groups, you've got yeshivish groups more to the right. You have groups farther to the left. You have something that's called modern Orthodox. You may have heard of them. What do they believe? It's hard to define, hard to know. They have a very wide, you know, spectrum of beliefs. There's a growing group called open Orthodox. Anyone ever heard of open Orthodoxy? 
This is kind of like the Chovavay Torah. There are groups on the fringes of orthodoxy. I view them as what conservative Jewry was to traditional Jewry 100 years ago. There are movements within mainstream traditional Orthodox Jewry that will claim to be working within Orthodox Jewry, but really are outside or are really, really close to the margins. Hard to know, inbounds, out of bounds. So for example, one of the issues that they're constantly, constantly pushing is ordination of women rabbis. I'm not gonna get into the substance of that issue, good, bad, or neutral, or why, or whatever that is, but many of these groups all the way on the edge to the far, far left of Orthodox Jewry have been pushing, okay, so we won't call them rabbis, we'll give them a different title. We won't give them a different title, we'll give them a different this, different that. And that, for whatever reason, again, without getting into the substance of it, is a push, that is a, 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 a hot topic within Orthodox Jewry, and many within mainstream Orthodox Jewry have laid down the law, ah, you cross that line, you're out of bounds. Where do I see Jewish life moving forward? So we have reform. You look at the demographics, the studies, about 30% of North American Jewry, these are rough numbers. 30% will identify as being reform. As I mentioned, and, and that's probably the biggest, maybe 30, 35%, that's the biggest group. Why? It's a catch-all. You don't need to do much to be reformed. About 20%, give or take, are conservative. Those numbers are going down. About 35% are unaffiliated. About 5% are other. There's some other weird denomination. And about another 10% are Orthodox. 10% are Orthodox. Where will Judaism be? Where are we going? I think reform is going to stick around. Conservative, I think those numbers are going to, are going to shrink. What about reconstruction? Everyone over here, reconstruction. There are all these like smaller groups. What was reconstruction? We don't have time to go through the history of it, but basically it was a radical thinker within conservative Jewry, actually during those first 50 years of conservative Jewry, a reconstructionist rabbi named Mordechai Kaplan, who went ahead and he had his weird, he had his own very far left views within conservative Jewry. And at a certain point he decided, I'm going to start my own belief system, really got, did away with, it's, it's in a certain sense, farther left than reform getting rid of God entirely, view, really viewing Judaism more as a culture that's worth preserving. Now, why did Reconstruction not take off? Anyone over here Reconstruction? Anyone over here Reconstruction? I have B'nai Tikva. B'nai they're not a... Rabbi Mintz. Rabbi she's wonderful, don't get me wrong. I consider her a friend. They're not a particularly powerful I force. I had a friend who passed away, but she lived to 92, so we're not too unhappy. But when she was alive, she and I used to go. To Pnei yeah. Why is Reconstructionist Jewry not a particularly powerful group? The answer is very simple. By the time they were a thing in the 1960s, they were unneeded. People weren't, look, people weren't and still aren't really looking for denominational Judaism. You know, you got Orthodox people are looking for Orthodox Jewry. Conservative and Reformed Jews are, there's really no such thing as a conservative and Reformed Jew. You have Jews who want to affiliate with whatever synagogue they're, they want to affiliate. They're not really looking for, there was no need for Reconstructionism for the masses. Most Jews aren't looking for, unless you're Orthodox, very few Jews are looking for a specific theological creed. They're just looking for convenience. So there was really no room left for Reconstructionist Jewry. Where do I see Judaism heading from here? 
There's a verse in the Torah that says, very important verse. God tells the Jewish people, when God, Moses talking, prediction, predicting, talking to the future, when Jewish people face crisis, tragedy, difficulty, you should respond with this song. It's either a reference to the, the song of Hazinu. It's more, more understood as the Torah in general. You should study the Torah as a testimony. God is telling the future generations, here's what you do, study the Torah. Well, how do you know the Torah will be around for us to study? God says, it will not be forgotten from your children. Says Rashi, this is a guarantee to the Jewish people. Talmud says, this is a reference, you see, the Torah will not be forgotten from the Jewish people is a guarantee that Torah will never be lost from the Jewish people. I have my theories of where Judaism is heading. I think reform is going to increase, conservatives is going to decrease, orthodoxy is going to have its set of challenges. <laughs> the Torah tells us, the Torah is not going everywhere. If you study the history of Jewish, Jewish history, take a broader scope, you know, a broader, broader scope, last 3,000 years of Jewish life. There have been many, many, many splinter groups, many denominations along the way. Jewish denominationalism in the United States, we talk about all these little groups, and they're all new for the most part. These are groups that are around for the last 200 years. Reform, conservative, specifically reform, conservative, reconstructionist, and some of the other humanitarian, that 6% of other groups. These are new groups. Where are they going to be? I say one thing. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. There's a prophecy right here in the Torah that says the Jewish people are not going away. However, it doesn't say the Jewish people. It says the Torah. The Torah is not going away. The Jewish people are not eternal. We are not eternal. What's eternal is the Jewish people who are adherent to the Torah. Go study Jewish history. You will find many, many, many denominations along the way. Beginning with Korah, the rebellion against Moses. We find, fast forward, the second temple, you know, even the first temple era. We find the majority of Jews, the ten tribes. They're, it's a dominant denomination. It's a rejection of Torah to some degree. They don't, they're not observing the Torah. They're Jewish culturally, but are abandoning traditional Torah observance. Fast forward to the second temple. Time of destruction, Second Temple, you have a million and one sectarian groups, denominations. You have the Jewish Christians, you have the Hellenists, you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sa- you have the, you know, the Essenes. You have a million of these little groups. Keep on moving forward. You get to, you know, later ages. You have the Karaites in the, the 800s. We talked about the other week, we talked about the Sabbateans. We talked about the Frankists. There have been many, many, many sectarian groups. You know what's interesting about all these groups? You know what survives? Which groups survive? There's one common denominator. The only groups that survive are the ones who pay attention to this verse. Judaism as a culture, Judaism as a group, Judaism as a race, there is no guarantee for its success. However, there is a guarantee for the future of the Torah. Torah will never be forgotten. 
If we want and we care about perpetuating generational Judaism, there's one answer. It's not, it's an interesting thing. The reformers in the 1840s wanted to reform Judaism because they believed Judaism needs to be adapted, needs to be reformed, changed. Conserv- what is, people don't know, what is, when we talk about conservative Judaism, what does the word conservative mean? Why do we call it, why did they call it conservative Judaism? It's not, here's an important point, just not for anything. People think it's conservative as opposed to, to liberal, like liberal conservative. That's not what the word is used as. It's conservative as in the word, derivation of the word to conserve, conservation. Not conservative like a, a political affiliation. It's from to conserve. The early conservative Jews and Jewry felt that Judaism, traditional, normative, good old-fashioned Torah as practiced for the last 3,000 years, ain't going to work in the United States. So in order to conserve Jewry, we're going to have to tinker with things as best as we can. Allow for driving on Shabbos. We'll change parts of the liturgy. We'll do away. We'll tinker with the halacha so that we can conserve, make sure Judaism's got to survive. They made a terrible mistake, in my opinion. I say this with love. I'm rooting. I love every Jew. I don't care your background, affiliation. I don't care if you're reformed, conservative, reconstructionist, atheist. I don't care. I love every Jew. Here's where I'll stick my neck out to get chopped up. What are my beliefs? I don't believe Judaism means reforming. I don't believe Judaism means conservative. Those are my beliefs. That's my attitude. Yeah. I love every Jew. I, some of my best friends are conservative and reformed Jews. I love every Jew. As an ideology, I do believe that they are flawed because I think they're going against this verse in the Torah, where the Torah tells us the only thing that will work is kilosi shakach mi pizarro, it won't be forgotten from your, from your children, says harizu Yisrael, this is an assurance to the Jewish people, she'in Torah The Torah won't be forgotten. You know, do we need to figure out ways to go ahead and make the Torah more palatable and more accessible to the masses? Of course. But we shouldn't ever, you know, sacrifice in our values and our beliefs. And reform jury and conservative jury to a large degree were motivated with noble, some, or at least with noble intentions, of trying to make sure that Judaism is still accessible, but they gave up on some of their values. I think reform jury is here for the next while. Conservative jury, I, I think they've got real trouble. 300 years from now, 500 years from now. <coughs> Please, God, Mashiach said, came and the Messiah should come and redeem us. Please, God, speedily in our, our days, amen. If he hasn't, 500 years from now, I don't think Reform, Conservative, Reconstructionist, anything other than traditional Judaism will be around. Will Chabad be around? If you view yourself within inbounds of, of Torah observance, you got a shot. Outside of that, I just, it hasn't, and I, I don't say that, like, I'm not saying that with, like, Pride. I'm not saying like I'm rooting for failure. God, God forbid. I just don't think it's going to work. It hasn't worked historically. No group has really survived the gener- you know, several generations who's deviated from mainstream normative Torah. It just hasn't worked. We've been around for a lot. We have a lot of history. We've got a lot of data points. It has not worked. The Torah tells us it's not going to work. I don't think these, these systems are going to work. That said, I'm not, I want them to be, I mean, to whatever degree, like, I want Jews to be involved and connected. I don't say that, you know, like, with, with pride, like, ooh, great. You know, I am an Orthodox rabbi. I get that. 
I'm not rooting for anyone's bad. I'm rooting, I'm rooting for Judaism. I'm rooting for the Torah. I don't believe they'll be around in 500 years from now. I just don't, I don't see it. That, that's based on historical records. It just hasn't worked. One last thought. And, oh my gosh, look at the late hour. I'm, I'm late. I, I feel bad. I apologize. I'll end with this. The last prophecy ever given to the Jewish people, ever given to mankind, Malachi, Malachi, the beginning of the second temple, if you think about it, it's the last communication that God tells, tells humanity. And then he's going radio silent. And we've been radio silent for the last 2,000 years. God reassures us, God promises us, he reassures us, don't worry, I'll send you Elijah the prophet, a, ref, a reference to messianic redemption. I'm coming back, don't worry. It's going to be a long, dark 2,000 years, but don't worry, I haven't abandoned you. Great. What's the second to last thing that God tells us? Zichru Torah's Moshe Abdi. Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant. Now, Judaism is a lot of things. It's a lot of things. But ultimately, ultimately at the core, it's the only thing that survives. The only thing that has survived is the Torah. It's the only thing. Everything else has come and gone. Cultures, ideals, more, all that stuff has come and gone. The Torah has been the only constant. I believe it will be the only constant moving forward. No, that is one thing that's interesting. I'll bet you a conservative rabbi, reform rabbi, any all rabbis, I think all Jews, as a knee-jerk reaction, will tell you, Jews for Jesus is not, you can have the biggest, you know, pork-eating heretic of a Jew, you know? And, <laughs> I said it with love. Yeah, but, right, says, not okay. Right, right? That, whatever it may be, right? They're inside of Judaism. Why, why do we... But that guy would say, no, Jews for G- Jesus, you're out. Why? Three reasons. I'll tell you. I, I, I was listening to a class. He gave three reasons. I'll tell you my, what I think. And I think some, number one, most of the people that go to Jews, if you've ever been to a Jews for Jesus synagogue, 99% of the congregants aren't Jewish. They don't claim to be Jewish. It's, it's, just not, it's just not Jewish. Number two is the rabbis are very obviously not Jewish. None of them are Jewish. They're just not. The, the leadership isn't Jewish. Number three, which is a more interesting question, is Jews, as we mentioned, ref, let's talk about Reform Judaism. Reform, which is a very, lo, like, what does Reform Judaism not believe in? It's basically one thing, Christianity. That's really what it is. They don't believe, Jews don't like Christianity. It's really deeply rooted in our collective DNA. My theory is, well, look at the last 2,000 years of history. We've been persecuted and beaten up and, and the atrocities that the Christians have afflicted upon the Jewish people. So great, in 1972, they decide we're going to take a new tactic and we're going to love and embrace the Jews and Jews are Jesus. No, we, you know, we're, we're also Jewish. We just believe in Christ and the sacraments and all that stuff. It, it just doesn't work. Like we have 2,000 years of collective history. Jews don't like Jesus. We just don't. And, and, you know, without even giving, it's, it's almost like, I'm not even giving the theological, I don't theologically, why is it not, it's not, you know, they're, they're theological, obvious answers. But even going without theology, Judaism just doesn't accept Jews for Jesus. It's not a done, it's out, that's out of bounds. I think, you know, by consensus, they've been voted off the island. So I don't know if that answers, that's what I think. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. 
For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.